You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Now, it's summertime, and that means it's time to start getting our trail cameras ready and our trail cameras out to start capturing pictures of velvet bucks. And our friends at Exodus are kicking things off with Velvet Fest. Now, what is Velvet Fest? Long story short, Velvet Fest is the opportunity for you to win a variety of different prizes just by purchasing Exodus Trail Cameras, one of the best trail cameras on the market. Now, until July 12th, when you purchase any trail camera, you will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a variety of prizes from companies like Wicked Tree Gear, Maven Rifle Scopes, Tethered Tree Saddles, and of course, Exodus Trail Cameras. Be sure to follow Exodus on Facebook and Instagram, and be sure to visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com for more information on Velvet Fest. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. So, I mean, really what I wanted to talk about today was our trip to Alaska because I thought it was a great experience and it was totally a new thing for both of us. Um, and when we went, we went with guides and we did a lot of stuff where we probably paid more money on the front end just to get the experience we were after. Right. But I also, while I was up there, was like learning, you know, if we wanted to do a trip like this DIY or if somebody else was interested in something like that, or even like looking long-term for like hunting opportunities, like what DIY options are there out there. I was trying to take mental notes and, and write things down for all that kind of stuff too. So I just kind of wanted to, you know, ex- like share some of those learnings too for anybody who might be interested. Right. So, I mean, luckily being in Minneapolis, we get direct flight options to not Fairbanks, but Anchorage. And I want to say round trip from Minneapolis is like 350 to $400 roughly wow, that, per person. That's pretty, pretty dang cheap. Yeah. And, that, and that's sun country. So sun country is definitely not your, your top tier type right. airline. You have to pay extra for all your carry on, pay extra for your, uh, your check bags, which I think was $40 a piece for a check bag, 30 for a carry on. So not the end of the world. And I just brought my Mr. Ranch pop-up as my personal item and just stuffed it under the seat. So I basically carried that and then just we both paid for a check bag. So is that per check bag the $40 or is it like the first one's 40 the next one's 60 or how is that done? I, th- I want to say, well, I guess I don't know for sure. I want to say it was $40 for each bag. But since we each had our individual tickets, we each only had one bag. You know, I'm actually, I'm pretty sure it's, it's 40 because we'll get to this, but on the way back when we checked additional items it was an extra forty dollars a person right 
but yeah, direct flight, five and a half hours, not too bad. You know, if we would have had to either choose like Delta or Alaska, even Alaska Airlines is probably $500. Like it was a, it was a fair jump to get to the next airline outside of Sun Country to be able to right. fly up there. Um, and a lot of the other options were non-direct flights where we had to lay over in Seattle or something like that. Yeah, and that's something you really got to look at is on your way back, especially like if you guys had frozen carry-on meat or something like that. You really got to look at those layovers in anticipation of that coming <laughs> right. back because it's like I don't want to go to San Antonio and lay over when it's 98 degrees and I have frozen meat to deal with. Even if it's on your checked luggage, that luggage actually sits in a cart on the ramp somewhere. So it's just something to consider with that is, yeah, with direct flight or most northern flights if possible. Yeah. Totally agree. And that was, apart from the price, that was one thing that we really wanted to, um, for the convenience of it, right? Just getting on a flight once and having just a quick flight there and not have to deal with it. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, once in Anchorage, we just rented a car for the entire week. I think based on, depending on who you're going with in terms of outfitters or guides or wherever you're staying, there could be the option for people to pick you up from the airport and they have to worry about the rental car if you're staying at one place the entire time. But for what we wanted to do, it really just made a lot more sense for a rental car. So that was another like 500 bucks for the week tacked onto the, pl- the price of the flights. Just a small car, um, you know, like a um, probably like an intermediate sized family car type of sedan. Okay. And so First, was your guys' plan to stay around Anchorage or were you guys going to kind of roam, you know, a couple hours from Anchorage? Uh, so our plan was to roam. Basically, we had booked a five-day fishing trip with uh, this place called Alaska Fish On, where the, the kind of the feel I got from them was they were kind of like a almost like a, a broker for fishing guides, where they had basically a day-by-day thing planned for us, where this day we'd go with this guide and fish for this kind of fish. The next day we would show up someplace else with a different guide, fish for a different kind of fish, and then they booked the lodging, which was at a separate place. Um, so it actually, from a, from the convenience standpoint, it was nice. Cause we just basically showed up, didn't have to really do any homework ahead of time. And basically we're given maps and like told exactly what to do. So that aspect of it was nice. And it gave us the freedom outside of that five day booking that we did have to be able to go explore and, and look at other things on that Kenai Peninsula. So, you know, the first, the first couple days that we were there, we didn't have that thing booked yet. So we... Well, we had a book to it. It wasn't starting yet. So the first couple of days were exploring days. Uh, we went about halfway down the peninsula, stayed at a nice little lodge that had uh, a lake right there, kind of settled in the valley between all the mountains. So we were able to do like some canoeing and some hiking um, and just kind of kill time. Drove down to uh, Seward, looked at, they had like a, um, basically like a, a sea aquarium. We went and saw that did some more hiking on the Russian river, which is a, a tributary off the Kenai river where the sockeye salmon would basically run up and that you could hike in maybe like a mile or so to see one of those fish weirs by basically like a, a really strong rapids. They call it Russian river falls. And you could see all the salmon just kind of stacked up there and starting to swim upstream. And, um, and basically, I mean, you could see them basically schooled up in those little eddies kind of resting. And then there, you would see a lot of salmon like actually just like you would see on like National Geographic trying to fight their way upstream and, and jumping up the rapids, which is kind of cool to see. Right. So you'd see the ones kind of staging in the eddies, kind of waiting to, 
to make their push up through the rapids, basically trying to st- get a little energy built up to be like, all right, it's my turn to try now. Yeah, pretty much. And in some of the places you could literally walk right down to the shoreline and, and be, you know, a couple of feet away from the fish. Whereas if you had a pole, you could, you know, reach out and tap them in the top of the head. And so was that your plan was to kind of, you know, spend the first few days looking around, kind of just seeing Alaska and then start into your, your guided fishing trips or your, whatever you called it. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily full guided, but just kind of assisted fishing trips basically. Yeah. And so part of the plan for that and the reasoning behind it was based on the fact that we were hopefully going to catch fish to freeze. If we basically finished our fishing trips with just enough time to get everything frozen, then we could basically throw those things on the flight and get back home versus if we did the fishing on the front end of the trip, then there would just be more freezer days. We'd basically have to pay for at the processor uh, before going ahead and collecting that fish and, and bringing it back home. So it probably would have worked that way too. Ultimately in the end, it, it worked fine the way we did it. I think it could have go, you could probably do it either way, but it's nice to have at least, you know, kind of that one full day where, you know, kind of plan after you finish fishing to make sure that your stuff is fully frozen solid before you get on the plane. Yeah, that, that would be a big one for sure. So the first actual fishing day that we did was it was salmon, but we had kind of the choice of whether or not we wanted to fish for kings or if we wanted to fish for sockeyes. That time of the year is what they would consider the first run for each of those species. From what I gather and what I was told, essentially the first run is usually fewer fish. The fish don't tend to be as big as the second run, but the number of fisher or fishermen and fishing pressure is also significantly lower. So like people are saying you come up in July for the second run and it's like shoulder to shoulder on the river side, trying to, to fish for the salmon. The other right. thing that we, um, we learned when we got up there, which we would have probably known if we'd have done better research was that on the Kenai King salmon were catch and release hundred percent. Can't even, you know, bring them out of the water. Uh, there's mm-hmm. another river not too far south from the Kenai, I believe pronounced the Kasilov. And that one, you could keep one King per person. However, it had to be a hatchery King. So when you'd catch one, you'd have to look for the presence of the adipose fin. If it was clipped, it was a hatchery-born fish, and you could keep it. Versus if it was wild, you had to let it go immediately. So that first day, we're like, well, you know, kind of realizing that we have pretty limited chance, I guess, to keep king salmon. Like, let's let's try and let's try and get some fish in the freezer. Let's try and go home with some fresh meat. So we asked to basically go uh, fishing for for reds uh, for sockeyes. And we got, we got told this pretty much the same story by almost everybody that we talked to, which is that the red salmon basically don't, they don't bite, so to speak. They're not really in a feeding mood when they swim up the river. And they basically travel toward the edges of the river going upstream, whereas the kings a lot of times will stay out closer to the, you know, the main channel. And those reds will just run up the shorelines and essentially you, you almost just catch them by snagging. The rule and the regulation is that you have to, just like with any other fish, you have to use, you know, a hook that's not just a bear hook. You have to have some kind of bait, you know, like a a fly or something like that. No live bait, all artificials. You can use a barbed hook, but it has to be a single hook. And the fish has to be hooked in the mouth. Absolutely no exceptions. So you're thinking, okay, what are the, you got this, these quickly moving rivers. What are the odds that you snag these fish in the mouth using a, a fly, essentially? It seems very counterintuitive and it seems 
extremely unlikely. But the way that these people fish and everybody's doing the exact same thing, like all the, you know, hundreds of people we saw basically all were doing the exact same strategy, which is you wade into the river with hip boots or waders about mid shin or so you try and find a spot in the river where there's maybe a little protrusion or something like that, where the salmon will basically get funneled around, you know, just kind of using the the river topography and, and contours to try and choke them down. So you'd be looking for essentially inside bends or like a little rock pile that was sticking out that the fish had to swim around. And you'd basically stand there with like a nine foot fly rod and anywhere between 10 and 20 feet of line out the tip of your rod and have maybe a four foot leader, uh, above your fly. And then, you know, maybe about a half ounce of weight above your, above your barrel swivel. And so all you do is you face downstream and you just basically flip that rig about straight out, just a little bit upstream and it hits the bottom almost immediately and just kind of bounces along the rocks and it just kind of bounces downstream. And once it kind of sweeps to the point where it's almost, you know, directly downstream, you maybe like a, a four or five o'clock or something like that. Then you would just take that rod and just sweep it toward shore. And then you just pick it back up again and flip it back up. So about every 10 seconds or so, depending on the speed of the current, you'd be flipping that bait back up the river and letting it drift back down along the rocks. So these fish are close enough that literally if you could see, you know, clear enough in the water, I'm sure you'd be seeing these fish swim right past your boots. Um, right. They had to be that close because a lot of times when you hook them, it's on that sweep at the end. So you're basically, your bait's almost in the exact same depth that you're standing in. But what happens and the reason that for some reason you hook a lot of these fish in the mouth is, you know, kind of the way it was explained to us is that these fish, as they're coming upstream, you know, they're kind of bobbing their mouths as they're, you know, breathing with their gills. The line will basically get trapped in their mouth. So the line's resting between the top and the bottom jaw. And then when you do that sweep, it just pulls the line through until it finally hits them with a hook. And that's where you'd, where you'd actually finally hook the fish. That is, that is definitely an interesting tactic. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's the whole time you're telling me this, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, how in the crap are you doing? But it makes sense when you think about it is you're, as you sweep it across, you're just trying to blindly get that line at some point in that 20 feet of line in the fish's mouth so that when you finish that sweep that fly comes through that mouth basically yeah so this is obviously a technique that's very very heavily dependent on just numbers and how many fish are swimming up so you'll have you'll have times when you'll be looking up and down the shore and it's like every couple minutes someone's fighting one and then you have those stretches where it's like you look up and down the shore and people are leaving because nobody's caught a fish in the last three, four hours. Everybody says that the fish start to move in on the tides and high tide typically is supposed to be the best or around there, give or take, you know, plus a couple hours. Um, but, but yeah, it seemed like, and you, d you definitely would snag some fish like, you know, in the, the dorsal fin or, you know, somewhere in the, the side of the right. fish or by the tail or something. But it seemed like, very often we would lose fish and of the fish that we did hook and lose, it seemed like an awful lot of them were foul hooked, but typically when you'd hook a fish in the mouth, those are the ones you would land. I think we maybe only landed like one or two fish that were foul hooked the entire trip. Whereas, you know, all, it was almost like if you stay out there long enough, we could typically not have a problem catching our limit of three per person that were hooked in the mouth and not really, not really land too many others. Right, and again, you're you're playing that numbers game, and 
you know, statistically speaking, you're probably more likely to land them because of where you're hooking them in the mouth compared to a foul hooking location. So again, more fish, more likely to snag fish, but then again, you're more likely to land the ones that are snagged in a, a more secure location with the hook, basically. So in the mouth compared to the dorsal fin or something like that. Right. And they, they tend to be a lot easier to fight when they're hooked in the mouth too. You hook one in the tail or something and he gets out in the current and starts swimming downstream. They'll just about spool you in a matter of seconds. Yeah. Whereas if you got them hooked in the mouth, you can kind of steer them a little bit easier and you get still a pretty good fight out of them. Um, especially on those, those fly rods. Um, but they're, you know, typically you could, you could have somebody with a net standing a little bit downstream of you and then they would, you just kind of, you know, steer the fish into the net. Makes sense. The other thing I thought was interesting, um, whether it was salmon, whether it was halibut, nobody's using live wells. Um, if you're on a boat, really you don't put live fish on stringers. It seemed like two, I guess, pieces of like essential gear for everybody was a flay knife or some type of pliers and a billy club. And it, right. it seemed like common practice, no matter who we saw, you catch a fish, first thing you do, hit it with the billy club to, um, to basically knock it out and then cut the gills. Then you put it on the stringer, let it bleed out, and then it just stays in the stringer until you're ready to go home. Which from a meat perspective, having them bled out like that, makes it really nice to fillet. You don't have to worry about, you know, fish flopping around on, or trying to grab for, for fish in the live well or anything like that. Um, it was definitely the ideal way to do it, I think, from a, um, a meat perspective. And it was kind of interesting because, like, in Minnesota, like, I don't think I've ever seen anybody with a billy club in their boat, apart from my grandpa, you know, like, 15 years ago, right? Like, everybody uses live wells. It's just, like, what we do. And then, yeah. just, and then at the end of the day, you're fighting around the live wall, trying not to get poked by the fish as they're swimming around. You're trying to grab them. Um, so it was like interesting, just how the, the cultural differences about how people would handle fish were different, but it was definitely convenient doing it that way. I wonder if some of that has to do with, you know, a lot of sport fishing is, you know, replacing fish in your live well in states where it's legal for obviously the bigger fish, whereas maybe in Alaska, it's just about the fish so they're more there about the meat and so that's why they just straight up billy them right off the bat instead of throwing them alive well where they're going to continue fishing for the rest of the day and maybe replace it with a bigger fish uh, you know i don't know how the laws work in alaska from that aspect of it uh, but like some states you're allowed to do that is you're allowed to just maintain your limit in the live well you can replace a fish with a bigger fish and so i don't know if that's something that's just specific to there or it'd be an interesting like you said a cultural topic to kind of look into yeah i mean i think it's that's definitely probably part of it and you can especially in like a lot of tournaments like calling is a, a huge thing um but from like a fish eating perspective even when we've basically you know you have like a, a rough day or whatever and you're struggling to catch your limit and you're, you're planning on taking home fish i can't remember a time where we've ever like not just thrown fish in the live well and just dealt with them at the end of the day i think i think part of it too is like every once in a while you got those days where you you catch like you catch like one fish and you're just dead tired by the end of the day. It's like, it's not worth it to clean this one fish and you just throw it back and go home. Right. Um, but I think part of it too, is we've always maybe kind of been under the assumption that if you're, you got fish in a live well and it's, it's hot out, you're in a boat, you're fishing all day. If you're just, you know, basically if you kill that fish right away, what's it going to do? It's going to sit in that warm water, maybe start to bloat or whatever. If you're sitting there long enough, 
versus up there in Alaska, you got those nice, cool glacier fed streams. You bleed those fish out instantly and they just stay in that nice, cool water. You don't have to worry about fish boilage at all. That's probably part of it too. Yeah. yeah and, and so on the boat, was it kind of the same thing or did they use ice on a boat more than say a stringer or even bleeding them out and putting them in a live well for that aspect? Well, so when we went on the halibut boat, they just, they again, Billy club the halibut. Once you bring them in the boat, they'd cut the gills and then they just throw it on the, the underside of the deck. Um, just open up the hatch and throw them in. There wasn't any ice or any water. So at the, basically the end of the trip, when they went to go fillet everybody's halibut, they just opened that door back up and they just start picking up the halibut. So a little bit different in terms of they didn't put it in cool water to bleed the fish out. There's just kind of a pool of blood at the bottom of that hatch that I'm sure they just drained right. out at the end. Yeah. And so kind of back to your sockeye real quick. So you flies really didn't matter, I'm guessing, because it was pure snagging. It just merely had to be something other than a bear hook. Right. And the guy that initially set us up, you know, kind of like the main the main dude that booked all our travel and, and trips and stuff, he actually rented us a couple, like a pole per person that we could just use when we were just chilling by our, our lodge in the evenings and stuff. He rented us each a pole and a net and uh, some hip boots and whatever for like 25 bucks for the week, which is a pretty good deal. Um, but he's like kind of like joking. They're like, oh, yeah, we always use the yellow yarn, like wink, wink, like it makes a difference. <laughs> like went to Walmart and he basically just, you know, picked up like a, um, you know, a little foot long piece of like yellow or orange yarn and he basically said like yeah it doesn't make any difference it's just basically to show the alaska fishing game that you're not just you know using a you're not snagging them but even i even read something i think on the alaska fishing game website where they acknowledged the fact that sockeyes like snagging them was like the popular way to catch them but they still want you to hook them in the mouth yeah they just don't want it to be too blatantly <laughs> obvious about how you're doing it right right and the uh the guides that we talked to some of them seem kind of like um, like mixed feelings about the the rules a little bit. It's like they want their clients to go home with fish, right? Because they want their their clients right. to be happy. But at the same time, it's like you know the way that the rule is right now. It's like everybody acknowledges that you're snagging the fish regardless. But if you don't snag it in the mouth, like you basically just took the salmon that is you know swimming upstream to its deathbed, and then you're just fighting the heck out of it, and then you just go release it again after being foul hooked. It's like how does that serve any kind of you know good purpose? Yeah, and especially from the guide standpoint, like you said, no, they want their clients to catch fish. The more fish they catch, the better fish they catch. The more likely that guide is to get a little better of a tip at the end. So it's like, hey, you know, we're all snagging them anyway, <laughs> so what the heck? Yeah. But what what was interesting about that whole thing, though, is everybody we've met in Alaska and everybody that we talked to all basically said the same thing about the sockeyes, that it was pretty much a snagging thing. And, and, and some people did say that later in the, the year, on, like, the second runs and stuff, sometimes you'll start to get them to bite. Um but I, there's a guy, uh, Big Kipe on, on Instagram. He was up there at, at the same time we were, and he posted a picture, and he basically said that he was catching them, like using the same type, type of tactics that he would use for, like, rainbows or steelheads or anything like that, uh, whereas everybody else was going um, snagging for them, basically saying that, you know, it's kind of sad that everybody in Alaska kind of thinks that the only way to catch them is by snagging them when, when clearly it's you can catch them um, in other methods too. Yeah, it just may not be the most popular or the easiest method for that matter. So right. you can make it, you know, it's like gun hunting versus traditional bow hunting. You can kill a deer both way, but it's really up to kind of the challenge you want to take on. 
Right. And for us, to be totally honest, we're all about the meat. Like I didn't Oh yeah. Like I didn't I didn't care how we caught them. I just wanted to go home with some some <laughs> sockeye fillets. <laughs> I definitely don't blame you, that's for sure. Yep. And the sockeye flesh is just deep red, just beautiful meat. It's it's lean. Um so you gotta be careful not to overcook it, but the flavors it's great. And all those fish we caught were probably I want to say like between 25 and 30 inches long. So decent sized fillets out of all those fish. So was there a, a size limit or a slot limit? No, there's, there's no size limit. Be... For the most part, every fish that you catch is roughly around that same size anyway. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember I'm... how old they are when they come back, but I think it's all r- right. roughly the same age structure that is all swimming through at the same time. Yeah. Be like your breeding age fish basically. So they may be two years old or three years old, basically that time right. they reach sexual maturity to come back upstream and breed so right i want to say too that the guide said that the males are actually larger than the females which is different from a lot of the fish we'd catch in the lower 48 i thought that was i thought that was interesting that is interesting different from a lot of things for the most part typically your females are slightly bigger than your males with the exception of deer for the most part Mm -hmm. yeah so and from a diy perspective sockeye Definitely the most achievable for anybody who just wants to like go up to Alaska and catch salmon on the cheap because you don't have to go with a guide. Like I said, the setup is pretty easy. I'm sure there's probably dozens of, um, you know, YouTube videos and Google articles about how to make a flossing rig. That's what they all, or yeah, flossing. That's what they call it. So the, the technique, if somebody wants to Google that flossing salmon or flossing reds is what it's called. Makes sense because if you're running the line through their mouth, obviously it's kind of flossing. Yeah. So from you, you know, you obviously went up there and done it now. You Would you say you would have no problem easily planning another trip and going back up and doing it again, unguided, um, you know, on your own basically? For the sockeyes, I'd say, yeah, for sure. Um, the, the biggest thing, the biggest two variables are, number one, there has to be salmon running for you to right. catch fish. I want to say the week before we went, the reports were just awful. Like people were coming up on their guided trips and not catching like a fish all week and just having like a heck of a time. And then we came up and it was great. So it's literally totally a timing thing. You don't know exactly when the salmon are going to run. You don't know exactly how heavy the run is going to be. Um, So you're just, it's really, if you're planning a DIY trip, the one of the biggest variables is just the exact timing. And then, like for example, the the Russian River I was telling you about, they they open it up after a certain number of fish have like basically gotten up upstream and like made it to spawn. It's like closed for a certain amount of time, and then once it does open up, then it just gets hammered with fishermen. And usually they say they don't open it up until like usually in July, I think. But they had already opened it up like when we were up there because that many reds had gone up. So it's like a, a year by year, a lot of variation. And even like the week by week can, can vary a lot too. what it sounded like. So you're saying it would be beneficial definitely to have some type of local source in the area that'd be like, Hey, yeah, you know, I'm guessing it's going to be around this time and it may be kind of a short notice, but you could fly up, you know, give or take a three week period, basically, if you were specifically going up for sockeyes. Yeah, that'd be your, your best bet, I think. And I mean, the more the more fine-tuned you could get that information, like it might even be three weeks out, you don't have a great idea, but maybe like a week out, you're like, hey, they're starting to come in. 
Yeah, like, but if, if you, you had, had like if a, you had that kind of freedom to be able to play in your schedule, like that would be the most ideal. Yeah, if you had like a three week window where you could go and they could say, Hey, you know, not this week but next week or the last week basically in that three week window. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the second run is a little bit longer and there's more fish, so you're probably a little bit safer bet trying to plan for that. I think they said that this first run was like forty thousand fish and they say that the the second run was I want to say this like twenty to forty thousand a day. Wow! They come up, and granted, all this stuff is just basically stuff that was told to me as second information. I've in fact checked right. all this stuff. Um, but yeah, it seemed like. But then again, the fishing pressure they all said was dramatically heavier that time of year. Um, and then there's other species of salmon like the like the silvers, the the cohos. They're like in August and. They said that those are pretty fun to catch too because they you'll catch them on like spinners and and things like that. Um, but yeah, for for sockeyes, I think it's definitely achievable. You just look up the flossing rig, you, you pick your week to go. From like a lodging standpoint, there's campgrounds. There's a lot of like the Chugach National Forest is in that area. Uh, there's campgrounds. I, I don't know if you can do like off the grid camping, but you. You could probably look into that. I'm sure you could find out that information if you wanted to go really cheap. Hmm. But we were thinking, like, if we flew up, like, you could fit a teepee and a titanium stove in your check bag. And, you know, you can eat at restaurants if you want to, or, you know, cook your fish or whatever. Like, you could pretty much, if you wanted to pack light, you could easily pack your week worth of, like, stuff and, you know, four-piece fly rod or something like that in a travel suitcase. Then once you catch your fish, there's a couple different processors out there that you can basically take your fish to and they can either clean it, vacuum seal it and freeze it for you. Or if you fl- uh, fillet it yourself, you can just bring in the fillets and they'll just basically take your fish in, they'll weigh it, give you a little receipt and then they'll kind of keep a tab going. And then by the time you're all ready to, to basically check out, you go back in say, I'm picking up my fish. They grab all the stuff for you frozen. Um, and in our case, they had the styrofoam coolers with all our yeah, fish in and then they fish put the coolers. Yep. They put basically cardboard boxes around the coolers and then tape those up. So you had a nice rectangular package that wasn't going to come undone. And that's what you would take on the plane. And that's a good thing is, you know, especially coming out of Anchorage or Fairbanks or anywhere up there, they deal with this a lot from the airport standpoint. So they kind of know the packaging, what needs to be done, what doesn't need to be done from that aspect of it. And even a lot of the guides up there, you know, they f- do so much of it that it's, you know, you do it in the lower 48 and you're going to get some weird looks for the most part. But when you do it coming out of Alaska, they really don't even bat an eye. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of those things too, when you're thinking about planning a trip like this, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know like what you're going to run into or what kind of issues you're going to have. But like you said, they're used to doing that up there. It's like their business. Yeah. Um, so it's not really it's not really a major concern. And I will so, say too about all those guys up there that we did see fillet fish. Those guys are good at cleaning fish, like f- fast, scary fast, and they do not leave much meat on those carcasses. But that's good. I mean, they <laughs> obviously they do it a lot. You want as much meat as possible, so right, right. So after sockeyes, would you would you guys go, um, and what did you fish for after sockeyes? The day after sockeye, we went and fished for halibut. And for that, we basically took a larger boat. Uh, it was like a six-person boat plus captain and plus uh, deckhand. So eight total people on that 
that boat had like twin 300s, maybe like a, I don't know, 30 foot boat or something like that. And we probably went out 25 miles from shore and started off fishing like 250 feet of water on like a hump. Um, and kind of the slack tide period where there's not much water moving in or out. And I would say for the most part, pretty much the entire day, we had almost nonstop action where you couldn't keep your bait down on the bottom that long, uh, before something was getting, you know, nibbled or hit on or whatever. And they would just cut a pairing as bait. So they put that on a giant circle hook and anywhere between two and five pounds of lead to eat down to the bottom based on how fast the tide was moving and how deep it was. So then we started off at two pounds. Then once the tide started moving in, we had to bump up to five pound weights. And even then you'd still have your line going off at like a 10 degree angle down in a couple hundred feet of water. So the tide was Man. moving pretty strong. So the boat would be anchored the entire time. Um, and then you just, everybody would just drop their bait straight down. Uh, so if you did hook a fish, sometimes you get it in tangle free. Sometimes it'd be, you know, swimming around and getting two and three other people, uh, other lines to make a little bit of a mess for the, the captain. Yeah. So cut herring circle hook, you said 250 feet on a hump basically. So they just have this little hump out in the middle that I'm guessing they know is probably kind of one of their honey holes. So, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure every guide probably has, you know, half a dozen spots or whatever the hill bounce between. Um, but it's, it, it seemed like, yeah, once you got to one of those spots, it seemed like at least the smaller sized fish were pretty thick and the regulations on halibut for charter fishing is you can, I think your annual limit is four fish, but you can keep two per day. And of those two, one of them needs to be under 28 inches, which is not a very big halibut and you don't get very much right. meat off of it, but that's just the way the, the regs go. So I want to say on our boat the entire day, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's 40, 50 halibut brought up, but the majority of them were around, I'd say between 30 and 33 inches. And yeah. I think everybody ended up getting their one fish under 28, which actually took the longest that we were out basically to the last fish was caught. It was basically getting the last two or three people there under 28 fish to be able to go back with. Um, cause a lot of the fish you would catch would be just over that 28 mark, but nobody caught at least on our trip, a giant, uh, I think the biggest fish it was caught was probably like 35, 36 inches. There was one cod that the guy caught that I'm sure had some pretty nice tasting fillets off of by, I don't know, <laughs> look like at least a 10 pound fish. And then, uh, Sam hooked a skate, which is like a big stingray. And that was probably the biggest fish that anybody hooked on the entire boat that whole day. Um, and we got that thing up to the surface and I was like, like, can you eat it? You know, like there's a lot of meat on that thing. He's like, ah, oh, probably. And he just like, you know, grabbed the hook and knocked it off. I'm like, oh. And then one of the other guys who's on the boat, he's like, yeah, those, I had that at a restaurant once. It's pretty good. I'm like, oh, great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Dang. What, what the heck? <laughs> yep. Yep. And then we, we brought up a couple of sharks too um, of, I think they called them dogfish. I don't know exactly what kind of sharks they are. But essentially the, the toughest thing about the halibut fishing is reeling in the weights. Well, and yeah, 250 feet. Yeah. Five pounds. What I mean, time frame. What are you talking? So say you catch something from the time at the bottom. Even if you just reeled up your five pound weight, are you talking like a couple of minutes to reel it from yeah. the bottom all the way up? Like like a minute. Some of the reels had had gearings on them, so right. you could either crank it up at normal gear ratio, or you could put it on like easy mode, and you could basically 
cut the effort that it takes to crank that thing in in half, but it would take you twice as long right. to get it up. And by the end of the day, I think pretty much everybody was doing that, that when they had those reels because <laughs> your arms <laughs> would get tired. And it, it was like at the beginning of the day, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, it was kind of fun to reel in the fish the entire time and feel nice and tired. But by the end, it's like, man, some of those little 30-inch halibut, it's like they just pick at that that herring and you just get hit and you just, you know, miss bites after miss bites after miss bites. And it's like, all right, try to, time to reel in. So, but you'd be, even if you weren't catching fish, you were still reeling in your bait to re, to check your bait or rehook, you know, once right. every five, 10 minutes. So it was like that aspect of it got extremely tiring, cranking in that weight. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Especially cause like you said, 250 feet down, you don't know, well, dang, did that help? Is still my herring? Right, exactly. I haven't had a bite. I haven't had a bite in ten minutes, so maybe I need to reel it up and look. Then you reel it all the way up. It's like, well, dang, I still got my herring on. So <laughs> yep. I might as well put a fresh one on and send it back down. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So at, at a certain point, it's like, you know what? I'm just gonna leave it on there for another five ten minutes and, <laughs> and rest a little bit. Um, some people use salmon heads. It's like you'd catch your sockeye salmon, you fillet them, and then you'd be able to keep the heads and throw those down. The advantage of using that is that those little ones don't don't steal your bait. Um, right. The disadvantage is that you don't get nearly as many fish or nearly as many hookups. But if you do get one to hit, it's usually a bigger one. Right. So like in our case, I don't think if anybody would have used a salmon head, I don't think it would have made a difference because nobody, I don't think the bigger fish selectively go after the bigger bait. I think the bigger bait just, you know, weeds off the smaller fish being caught. Right. And you guys were just in a spot where it seems like there wasn't very many big fish, if any. You know, you were kind of like what you're talking about, the sockeyes, they were all just a certain size range for what you were catching in that area. I I would assume that it's a mixture, but there's just a, you know, the, the population structure. I'd imagine there's just way, way more of those little fish around in terms of numbers than there are the big fish. I don't know, maybe it takes like two, three years to grow a halibut of the 30 inch size and maybe to get to hundred pounds, it maybe takes 20 years. Like, I don't know, but it could be something like that where it's just the, the population structure is so heavily, you know, tiered toward the smaller sized fish that catching numbers of them isn't that um, remarkable. Whereas, you know, catching one of those big ones, it's like, you know, maybe maybe the, the charter boat might catch one that's like a 50-pounder in a day. Or maybe they'll go a day where they catch like four over 100, and it's just like maybe more random. Right. Makes sense. And so kind of what was your takeaway? I mean, obviously I'm guessing with the halibut, you've got to have some type of charter vehicle or charter boat to take you out to that spot um from a diy standpoint i'm guessing halibut's probably one of the harder ones to do yeah i don't know that you'd really be able to do diy halibut unless there's some kind of boat rental service which i'd be surprised because the, the big water potentially like that out in the pacific ocean i'd imagine there's some maybe you know pretty big liabilities or that kind of thing so i'd say halibut you're probably almost required to basically pay for somebody's services to take you out in the boat just to be able to get out to where those fish are obviously right much less being able to find them out there 25 miles 25 miles out 250 feet deep there's a lot of margin for error there right right yeah if you have good electronics and you can look at the maps beforehand i imagine you could probably you know pick out some spots but i don't know what the what the depth charts look like in that type of place so after halibut, what was next? After halibut was day two of salmon. And we could have went back and fished for more sockeyes. Uh, but at this point, we're like, hey, we can catch sockeyes, like, literally right behind our cabin. 
and we had by that point, but like get home from halibut fishing, drop off our fish at the processor, go back home and floss some more reds and catch a couple more and then drive those back over to the processor. So we were like, you know what, let's, let's try and catch a King. Um, cause at that time we had, like when we first showed up, they basically said like, they're not, you can't keep anything on the Kenai. Okay. Let's do sockeye. But we had gotten a text message saying like, Hey, they're starting to catch some, some hatchery Kings on the Kasilov. Like, would you guys want to do that instead? And we can change things around. Like, yeah, sure. Let's do that. Uh, so we show up and this was a drift fishing trip. Um, so basically instead of standing on the shore and waiting and fishing that way, we're fishing more in the, the center of the river and we're fishing in heavy current, kind of like trolling, but not moving. So more like relying on the current and the speed of the current to give your bait action. And the boat right. would basically be stationary. So the way this would basically work is you'd have these boats that it almost looks like two bows. It's kind of shaped like a banana. Like there's no stern yep. of the boat. And you'd have a guide sitting up in the front of the boat with two oars and he'd just be, you know, back rowing and, and kind of holding your position or moving you left or right to be able to hit certain uh, places within the channel. And then he could either basically row at the speed of the current and keep you stationary, or he could row slightly slower than the speed of the current, which would allow you to slowly drift downstream while at the same time still allowing enough current that your baits are actually uh, moving in the current. And those fish are coming upstream. So you're basically, you're trying to get the boat positioned to be, you know, right in front of the path of the fish. And they're coming upstream, they see that bait working in the water and they hit it. So sometimes what our guide would do is he'd basically have certain stretches of the river that he liked. And he had a little, you know, like code names for him. Like, Oh, I'm going to go hit this spot, you know, twice. And we'd go drift it down. And by the time we got to the bottom of it, he'd step out of the boat, walk it up the shoreline, start the drift again. Um, certain times we'd anchor and just kind of sit stationary. And we typically would have one rod per person just sitting in the rod holders. Like we wouldn't be holding the rods or anything, just kind of waiting for one of them to go off. Uh, once a fish would hit, you'd pick the rod up out of the rod holder and then fight it into the boat. So not as active of a fishing method as the sockeye fishing was, but the difference was you were actually hooking the fish uh, from them hitting the bait. Right. And it was definitely a very active form of fishing for the guide, but not necessarily for the uh, the people fishing. But I'm guessing after a, a day reeling in two and five pound halibut weights, it was probably a good... Oh yeah. <laughs> a good break from that aspect. Cause yeah, it was, it was relaxing. Uh, nice, quiet, you know, little boat. You can have, you know, just chat for hours about whatever. So that aspect of it was kind of nice, especially after the more physically demanding halibut fishing. And so did it seem like lure or bait selection or fly selection for that matter had a big impact in it or? Uh, it seemed to be the, the salmon fishermen, the king drift fishing guys, they were... The, especially the guy we had very meticulous. Like I put it on like the level of like tournament bass fisherman meticulous. <laughs> like he would, he would take his baits and wash them in like special scent free soap. Like the night before he go out, he'd be like, you absolutely cannot touch the bait. We don't want any human scent on the, on the lures. He had, you know, 16 different colors. He'd be paying $50 for these, these old used like plugs that you can't find anymore on eBay. Um, he'd be like, Oh, once the sun comes out, okay, let's switch colors. Let's put this color on to, you know, get a little brighter or a little bit more natural or whatever he's trying to go for. Um, so he was, you definitely took a lot of, uh, a lot of pride in, and basically putting his clients on fish. And it seemed like some of the other guys were kind of the same way. I think more so there's definitely more people that took it very seriously rather than people who are just kind of like, you know, using generic type stuff and, and just 
basically going through the motions. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, so definitely from, like, the aspect of how much you care about what your rig looks like, like night and day different than the sockeye rigs. <laughs> so, yeah, just the yellow yarn. No, we got to go with this <laughs> this particular 1930s model. I rehand painted it and washed it last night. Yeah, he was saying that – because I asked him about the baits, and he's like, yeah, they don't make them anymore. But he's like, they work really well. And there's kind of like a it's, – it's like a collector-type – you know, valuation for the, some of those baits. And it's almost like the more, the more fish a certain bait will catch, the higher its value goes up. So when you're selling a bait, you might say like, we've caught, you know, 18 King salmon on this bait, or maybe it's like 200 King salmon. And like the more, the more proof you basically have that that's a good bait. Like the, he said, he's ha- had uh, seen some of those, those old plugs go for like $250 used just okay. for one bait. Yep. That's nuts. I couldn't imagine. And then they also used, uh, so they used those plugs, which are kind of like crankbaits, but they didn't have a bill, but the bill was kind of like built into the shape of the bait. And you basically, you tie into kind of the top and it would, the front, the the head of the bait would basically act like the lip for those baits. And then it was just one single hook hanging off the back because I'm sure that was all that was legal. Right. And then the other types of bait that they would use is they would have those little divers, um, not a dipsy diver, but the same type of thing, kind of smaller, where it just basically pulls your bait straight down, not off to the side. And then behind that on a small leader, they would have like spinning glows, which is like a little, like a pink or orange or whatever colored piece of foam with like a, a fan basically on it. So it spins in the water with just a hook behind it. No live bait, which it sounded like you could obviously do better if you had live bait, but just with the restrictions that they had, um, you know, it's it pretty strict around the Kings. Yeah, it seems like, and I don't know a whole lot about fisheries, but it seems like Alaska really takes their fishery regulations to a, anywhere where you typically find salmon, takes them to an extreme with the regulations on what you can use for bait and how you can catch and how many you can keep. Yeah, and there was, there was definitely enforcement. You know, we saw plenty of fish and game officers, you know, throughout the week that were, you know, checking people and giving citations. And, yeah, I don't think they... I think they take the the stuff pretty seriously up there. And so, I, was there any was there anything after Kings on? I guess that would be the, what your third day. Uh, after the third day, it was our day to do whatever we wanted, where we basically had another day with the lodge. But we could, you know, go on a sightseeing trip. We could go on a hiking trip. We could go fishing. It was kind of up to us. Um, and so, what we chose to do in that last day, which happened to be the only day of the entire trip that it was kind of rainy is we basically just fished out the back of the cabin and caught a few more sockeyes uh, mm-hmm. to be able to take back in. So all all said and done, about how many pounds of meat between you and Sam did you guys bring back? We I think we the two boxes we brought back were 68 pounds. Uh, so if you subtract the foam in the boxes, I don't know, maybe you're on like somewhere between like 62 and 64 pounds of meat. It's not and bad. I'd, I'd estimate that about 15 pounds of that was halibut. I think 13 pounds was king salmon, and the rest of it was sockeye. Okay. And so kind of going back through in the progression of DIY, you would say sockeye, then probably kings would be your nest bet DIY, and followed by halibut obviously being the hardest. Would you yeah. agree? Yep, and it's definitely possible we didn't, 
didn't see it being done. We didn't really know if it was a thing there, but you could probably, I would imagine at certain times of year, catch Kings from shore. Um, but definitely sockeye was the most feasible to just be able to go up there at any time with, and be able to do it without, with just kind of minimal packing, minimal gear, no boat. So yeah, I'd say sockeye for sure from a DIY aspect for that time of year. Uh, maybe the pinks or the, the silvers are, are the same kind of deal too. I don't really know. So, are you, based off this experience, are you going to try to plan a DIY trip to that area? Or do you think you would do um, kind of something similar to what you did, maybe in a different time for targeting different fish? Uh, good question. Um, I guess nothing in the immediate plans. We've, we've been kind of talking about, like, oh, is this something we'd want to do again? I, I think from the standpoint of, like, did we like it would it be worth the trip to go up there just to bring home the fish and i think if you're really into the wild fish like when we did the cost analysis it definitely even at like you know i think halibut around us is like 20 to 25 dollars a pound um wild sockeye salmon usually is like 13 to 15 dollars a pound king salmon i don't even think i've ever seen king salmon at one of our local grocery stores normally you just get like the atlantic farm salmon um but even when we did that cost analysis, it was still like we were, we had spent, I think maybe a thousand or 1500 more than the value in the market value in fish that we brought back. But it was definitely still fun from the experience standpoint. So it's like, if you just literally wanted to get the fish and that was what you cared about, you, you could save money by buying wild frozen fish right. at the store. Um, but I think from like the trip, it's then it's like, okay for a DIY trip up to Alaska, would we like to go back to Alaska again? Probably. So it's a question of, okay, would we want to go for another fishing trip, make a DIY, or would we try and do like a hunting trip instead? Um, so I did a lot of research on the various DIY hunting options in Alaska too. Cause there's obviously a lot of wildlife on the Kenai Peninsula. And then obviously once you, like the entire state is enormous, like there's so many different opportunities. Seemed like the biggest challenge uh, typically is the fact that there's hardly any roads in Alaska. Um, when you look at it on the scale of the entire state. So usually the, the biggest, like there's very, there's very few like true totally DIY options. Um, right. Because typically you always, if you're going anywhere off the road system, you're often hiring a transporter to be able yeah. to fly you into some type of place and either fly you back out or you're maybe, maybe doing a float trip back. And that those plane hours are crazy expensive. Right. Like I was looking at the, the price of tags. I'm like, man, you can buy Alaskan moose tag for like a thousand bucks with the tag and the license and whatnot. I'm like, that's not terrible. And there's certain places that you can road hunt off of essentially around like the Fairbanks or around the, uh, right. The Anchorage area. Um, but they, for what I understand, those are also the areas that the locals hit the hardest. And if you want your kind of true wilderness experience, so to speak, you, you kind of need to, to have a transporter. Uh, get you into some of those places and so i mean that's like a thousand bucks an hour for some of those planes depending on what size plane you need 500 a thousand bucks an hour yeah but then you could look at something like blacktail deer for example you know yeah. those can be pretty well diy on your own um you know whether you take the ferry from washington you know you take your own vehicle out of washington up to alaska from that aspect or you fly but that whole just a blacktail deer in general can be done pretty easy DIY. That's true. I wasn't really looking at blacktail. 
Um, but I think Kodiak, you can shoot like three or four bucks or something like that for blacktail. Um, Southeast, you can shoot them too. I think moose is probably, that was the one I was looking at the most. And it seemed like it was going to be expensive no matter how you slice the cake. Um, caribou, it seemed like from a DIY type hunt, it seemed like the Hall Road was probably the most popular option. Right. Where you basically fly into Fairbanks, you get a car and you just drive up north for hours and hours and hours until you, you know, you basically just parallel the Alaskan pipeline um, until you find caribou. And then if you have a rifle, you have to be at least five miles away from the road. Whereas if you have a bow, you can pretty much hunt wherever. And I know in Alaska, there's certain species that you either have to have a guide or a resident with you to hunt as a non-resident. Yeah. But there are certain species that you are allowed to hunt as a non-resident on your own. And I don't know that list off the top of my head. I think it was grizzlies and doll sheep you had to have, or any kind of mountain goat or sheep, I think you had to have a guide. But blacktails, um, elk, moose, caribou, black bears, you don't need a guide for any of those. Okay. So it just seems like the... I wouldn't even call them the big game because they're all big game, but some of the more, um, when you think of Alaska, the animals you think of the most are the ones that you probably have to have a guide or a resident to be with you to hunt. I'd say with the exception of moose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Black bears seem like, it seemed like they just, some of those places, especially they give you just black bear tags, like super easy like oh this place you can shoot three this place you can shoot four um so if you wanted to go up there for a black bear trip like it seemed like alaska definitely had a lot of opportunity but then again you're also looking at like i think it was four to five hundred dollars per bear in terms of your your harvest tag right when black bears can be had in the lower 48 exactly some states for a a heck of a lot cheaper that's for sure i think it's like 40 bucks for a minnesota tag something like that. So it's like, eh, I don't know if I'd rather just shoot one for $40 than have an opportunity to shoot four and pay two grand. I think when I, when I killed mine in Arkansas, it was included on my deer tag, which was like 37 bucks, which was like six deer tags and a bear tag. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's hard to be, hard to beat that kind of value from a, a price per pound standpoint. Oh, exactly. Even <laughs> states like North Carolina. I mean, they put out some big bears out of North Carolina that rival probably some of the bigger bears in the lower 48. And so, you know, you, sometimes you don't have to travel all the way to Alaska to hunt something like a black bear. Although a lot of people think black bears in like Manitoba and things like that. So, well, aren't black, don't black bears have one of like the largest natural ranges of a lot of the species that we go after? Yeah, I could believe that. I mean, they're they're, from, they're from Alaska all the way. Uh, Florida even has black bears. Yeah. How many Florida, other species do you know that from from Florida to Alaska? The coyote. Yeah, another predator. Or yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and like I said, you're they're from the east coast to the west coast, basically. So they pretty much cover most all of the lower forty eight, Canada and Alaska. So yeah. Yeah, so I guess to answer your, your question, probably will go back to Alaska at some point, but don't know what for yet. And a lot of that's going to depend on the time of year you plan on going to. Right. Probably figure out what I would want to do first and then start planning the time of year based on that. Right. Yeah, it would kind of be pointless to try to go hunt, you know, moose in January because I don't even know if they have seasons for moose in January up there. I doubt it. 
Do they have any daylight in January? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah, one not hour, legal one hour hunting it per day. <laughs> yeah, like seven minutes, man. You better make it count. <laughs> well, the the caribou on the Hall Road, I think it opens up in August, and north of the Arctic Circle in August, you got like, like the sun hardly even gets close to th- like, you're almost entirely day that time of year. Right. So, from what I was reading up on about that, it seemed like, you know, you just had a ton of time that you could hunt and like the animals are there and stuff. And you could have, I think there's a lot of people that do that because it's pretty popular. It's like, and obviously like the only place you can drive to up in that area of the state. Um, but it seemed like apart from the fact that it was all tundra and hard to walk in and very buggy that time of year, it, it seemed like a nice, like could be a potential fun option for your, your hunt that happens before your main lower 48 season start to open up in the fall. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the Alaskan hunts are, I think they even start hunting sheep as early as like the end of July. Um, so, I mean, there's a big opportunity, like you said, you can kind of move your way from north to south hunting. Um, and yeah. I think I've I've read or seen people camp on sheep all night, basically, is like they'll find a, a good ram the day before season. And they'll literally, because it doesn't get dark enough, they can camp on it all night and glass it through spotting scopes all night long until shooting hours and then be able to take it. Yeah, I imagine so. I think black bears, there's there's also no close season for a lot of the state. Um, same thing with wolves, I think. Year-round, you can hunt them. Wolf would be a cool one. I'd want to trap a wolf, though. I'd rather trap it than shoot it, but I think that'd be a... That would be a fun one. I, if I go to Alaska, the reason I would go to Alaska is to run a trap line. Can you, do you know if you can run a trap line as a non-resident or if there's any kind of extra loopholes more, more well, so than hunting? It, yeah, I think it's a guided. You have to run it with somebody, but you can go with them to run a trap line basically. And for me, that's what I would want to do. Um, I just The fur bears that are up in that state to me are just really cool. So I think that would be my go-to over hunting anything up there. Other than a sheep, if I drew a sheep tag, I'd go in a heartbeat. But for the most part, if I'm going, I'm going to go run a trap line. Do you know if the wolves up there are significantly bigger or smaller or the same size than some of the ones that are in the lower 48? Oh, they're drastically bigger. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a, you know, you always hear the Yellowstone wolf reintroduction. They put super wolves in Yellowstone and all this stuff. Uh, it's just where they got the wolves from. Bergman's rule says the farther north you go, the bigger the body of the animal. Obviously, we didn't have wolves at the lower 48, so they got them from Canada, I think of the, like on the border of Alberta somewhere. Um, so they're a bigger body wolf than what was naturally in Yellowstone, but we couldn't have got a smaller bodied wolf to put in there. So, Right. Well, the thing about wolf fur, too, that I was reading once is that it's like one of the preferred furs for like when people have those, uh, where the coats with the, I can't remember what they call the muffs or whatever around the hood. Right. They're saying like wolf fur. And I think Wolverine fur were like the two most preferred because they don't freeze up as much with your breath. Yeah. It has to do something with the hair structure of it. Um, but yeah, that's the big, the big selling feature of it is the fur lined edge of the hood. Yep. So Wolverine would be something cool to catch too. Yeah. I I remember watching some of those shows where they just follow the, you know, it's like the Discovery Deadliest Catch, but it's like the version of the Alaskan Trapper driving yeah. around in the snowmobile. Cut off to a commercial break right before the guy's about to crash his sled into a tree. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think those are very realistic to a degree, I'm sure. But Oh, I'm sure they probably cherry pick those people out of like the most entertaining that they can find. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, ov- it, was, it was definitely it was definitely a fun trip overall. Um Yeah, overall sure. was it was it worth the additional price per pound you paid for the fish for the gained experience as well? Yeah. Yeah, I mean like here's the kind of the way that we looked at it. Like if we had gone up with the intent of saving money by going and catching our own fish versus buying, like we wouldn't have come close to coming out ahead. But when you look at it from the standpoint of like, you know, how many people go to like Hawaii or something for their honeymoon and basically just come back with a fun experience and pictures. Right. And we basically, you know, paid, you know, maybe a similar price. But we also came back with, you know, a thousand plus dollars worth of fish as like a bonus. So like that, that was kind of, you know, the way that we looked at it. It's like, Hey, we got this, you know, this nice, uh, vacation, um, had a great time and we got all this extra fish. Right. And both of being more kind of outdoorsy people, you had, you know, the memories made of fishing and things like that. I'm sure there's things that happened out there fishing that you guys will remember for a long time from laughing standpoints, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So you made, you had more memories made from that aspect because you were both out there doing not only something you enjoy, but together as well as having the bonus of coming home with the meat. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sam took some pictures of me, um, drying myself off after falling in the river one of those days. <laughs> so that ain't a fishing trip. If you don't fall in, I'm just saying. Yeah. It was, it was the King salmon fishing trip. I hooked into a, a King and then the guy had pulled the boat over to the shoreline so that we could step out and fight it from shore and land it on the bank. And, uh, I didn't notice out of my peripheral vision that when he stopped the boat, basically the oars were kind of sticking out at a, a, you know, small angle from the side of the boat that I was on. So when I go to step out of the boat, the oars like six inches from my left foot and I don't see it there because I'm fighting the fish and I go to take another step left and that thing just sweeps right, sweeps my leg right out from under me. I lay there full, full blown on my entire left side and that, that glacial stream hold basically supporting my body with my left arm and holding the rod up with the other arm <laughs> the question is did you land the fish i did didn't even there give me you any, go. didn't even give me a slack line that's all that matters <laughs> yep yep good memories that's, that's good i mean that's ultimately what the whole trip was about so yeah so i mean ultimately too like if I know even when I was up there, a lot of people were like messaging me like, oh, you know, I live up there or used to live up there or um, planning a trip, you know, up there myself. Like if anybody has any questions like more specific than what we covered in this podcast, send me a message on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. I'd be more than happy to you know answer any of those specifics. And that'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from Bobby and myself, subscribe to the DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube. And with that, thanks for listening.